I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The situation in Sudan eight months after the conflict started is catastrophic. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. We have about 7 million people displaced in Sudan. Conflicts are blazing around the world. Sudan, Ukraine, Gaza. In Gaza, the Israeli military filmed desperate civilians fleeing south, clutching white flags, afraid of being gunned down. Those who can't walk are pushed. There's no fuel for a car. These conflicts often become shorthand for the relationships between nations. And we are ready to respond decisively to Russian attack on Ukraine. The dominance of the United States is increasingly challenged by autocratic power players. Russia, China and Iran. But the United States is still the dominant superpower and as such, still requires the dance of diplomacy. So what does that dance look like now, given the U.S.'s fragile and murky and sometimes volatile relationships with the other side? Relationships that have implications for the entire world. The Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto hosted a conversation in November 2023 to try to answer that question. They spoke with two experts on U.S. diplomacy, both from the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Suzanne Maloney, she's the vice president and director of the foreign policy program there, and Ryan Haas, who directs the John L. Thornton China Center. Their conversation was moderated by Diana Fu and Mark Menger, both at the Monk School. We are very honored to have you both because you're you're both not only regional experts with deep expertise in uh, in the areas that you study and work in, but you also have years and decades of diplomatic experience in advising various uh, U.S. administrations. So I want to delve uh, right into the heart of questions that have been facing us these few weeks. The conversation begins with the most recent crisis, the war in Gaza, and China's stance on it. Beijing has tried to maintain a rather neutral stance in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And we know that China has had historical ties with Palestine. It was one of the first, um, it was the first non-Arab country to forge diplomatic relations with Palestine back in 1965 under Mao. And earlier this week, um, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, had received a number of his counterparts um, from Arab states and reaffirmed the friendship and the fact that um, China is a brother to the Arab states. But we also know that China has a lot of investments in Israel. So can it really afford to play this this neutral dance? To you, Ryan. I, I want to first talk about the what of uh, China's response to events in Israel uh, and then the why. Uh, the, the what is that China has not condemned Hamas's attack uh, against Israel. Uh, China has broadly condemned attacks on civilians. China has 
broadly condemned Israel's response to, to the attack by Hamas. And China has indicated that the, the real crux of the problem is the lack of a two-state solution, and that's where the focus and the energy should be placed. So that's where China is. The question is why? And I, I think Diana's, the way that she framed the question sort of leads us partway down that path, but I, I think there are a few other dimensions as well. The, the first is that um, China wants to be seen as a principled actor, a actor standing on the side of peace and principle in contrast to the framing that they want to use the United States as a provocateur, as a uh, destabilizing actor, as the agent standing behind Israel and standing behind Ukraine uh, in stoking conflict. They want, the Chinese also want to try to make gains in the Middle East. They want to appeal uh, to the in interest of uh, other countries in the region and show a certain degree of solidarity with them. And that is reflected in the fact that, uh, that China's foreign minister hosted his uh, you know, counterparts from the region yesterday in Beijing. But there's another dimension to it, which rarely gets attention, in, at least in the Western media, which is that China does not want to further inflame domestic tensions inside China. Uh, China has a, uh, a Muslim population. Um, not just Uyghurs in Xinjiang, but also Hui and others. Uh, and they, they simply don't want to add stress to what is already a rather delicate uh, situation at home. And so, I look, the Chinese diplomats, Chinese strategic thinkers, they understand that they don't have a solution to this problem. They understand that siding with Palestine and opposing uh, Israel's actions is not going to provide a roadmap to, uh, to a solution. But they are going to try to position themselves to gain benefits in the region and to sharpen a contrast between their posture and the posture that they want the world to see from the United States. And so that's where I, I think China is right now. China recognizes that, uh, that they have introduced strain to their relationship with Israel. But I was in uh, you know, Beijing a few weeks ago. My sense is that the Chinese believe that Israel will come back to them, uh, not out of love or amity, but just out of cold-hearted uh, realization of their own interest, and that uh, economic determinants will drive Israel to repair the relationship uh, with China once, uh, once the situation is calmed. So assuming for a moment that Israel ends its military action in Gaza with a defeat, sort of, you know, whatever that is of Hamas, temporarily, locally, right? Um, what are the options for guaranteeing stability there and for preventing a resurgence of, of Hamas, so maybe worse in Gaza? Could you maybe, uh, and a lot of this, of course, will involve regional and international diplomacy. Could you maybe lay out a few scenarios for us? I'd like to. I think none of them are terribly optimistic. I think what, what many hope is that in the aftermath of the most active phase of this war, and there I would note that, you know, I think there won't be a day when the war ends. It will be a, a tapering off of hostilities and Israeli uh, military activity in Gaza. Um, the, the expectation would be that there will be someone who needs to come in and provide security, provide reconstruction, and provide economic opportunity, as well as a political pathway for Palestinian politics. We have heard the uh, U.S. government has insisted that it should be the Palestinian Authority that comes in. Um, there has been some pushback on that particular point from Prime Minister Netanyahu. I, I believe that it is still the expectation and understanding for uh, among all the parties. 
Um, but when we think about the Palestinian Authority providing authority, um, you know, meaningful governance and security in Gaza, uh, it's hard to imagine that happening now with the current leadership of the PA being relatively inert and relatively um, unpopular even on the West Bank. Um, and so I think there, you know, there are a lot of discussions about what that might look like, but I can tell you I've heard nothing that I find terribly credible about what an immediate pathway is to reimpose uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, leadership um, at a time when you're trying to actually encourage some kind of a, a transition within that leadership itself. I think it's one of the fundamental dilemmas. The other dilemma, of course, is who provides security. Um, the Palestinian Authority would not be in a position to do that effectively, and I can't imagine that the Israeli government would uh, have confidence in their ability to do that successfully. Um, there have been various propositions that suggest perhaps the parties to the Abraham Accords might be willing or capable. I think that also um, strains credulity. Uh, you know, will the United States take on some role? Not likely, but again, that is another idea that has been proffered in Washington. So, it, you know, it is quite striking that while everybody understands that this is going to be a time limited operation, and we've heard senior Israeli officials say that themselves, that they recognize and they did, frankly, from day one, that, that the public opinion around the world would turn against them very quickly and that there would be a, a limited window of opportunity to actually achieve what they're trying to achieve, which is the elimination of Hamas's capability to undertake another attack of this of any kind uh, on Israeli territory. Um, but and while, as I said, much conversation around the idea of, of the day after, again, really from the opening moments of this conflict, um, I haven't heard and I, and I don't have a pathway to provide to you that gives any of us confidence that we're going to be in a better position as the Israeli uh, military operation winds down than we're in today. And that, frankly, is what worries me the most. I'll just end with one final point, which is that you know, a, a different war, one that isn't entirely analogous to this, but the 2006 uh, Israeli war in Lebanon. Um, I was in the government at the time, and I think there was a lot of will and interest and determination to ensure that uh, Hezbollah, which was not, of course, fully eliminated by, by that war, but was, in fact, um, hit very hard in terms of its capabilities. Um, there was a strong determination to ensure that the international com community led by the United States would come in, rebuild southern Lebanon, um, would rebuild the, the Lebanese armed forces, the regular army uh, under the government's control in a way that wouldn't allow Hezbollah to dominate either politics or the security situation there. I think we all know how that story ended. Um, and in many ways, the, the conditions were more fortuitous for a success there than they are in Gaza. That's interesting, right? As you mentioned, uh, the status of the of the PA at this point. I mean, uh, to the extent we can we can uh, give credence to these to these surveys, but it seems that Hamas is more popular in the West Bank than in Gaza itself, and maybe vice versa for the Palestinian Authority. Um, now, this, of course, is not sadly the only major conflict that is going on, but the other one has maybe captured less attention recently, right? We've discussed this one conflict, but let's turn to the other conflict, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, doing diplomacy with another autocrat, Vladimir Putin, and among autocrats. Um, let me address this to Ryan. Uh, so uh, Russia's President Putin has become somewhat of a burden for the Chinese leadership uh, uh, in the sense that you know he seems unpredictable and, uh, and, and they've overextended themselves maybe in their support. But what is your sense of how the Chinese leadership and the Chinese public maybe perceive Russia's war in Ukraine? Um, 
as this war drags on, how can they deal with this conundrum that they can hardly drop support for Putin on the one, on one hand, but at the same time, they don't want to condone territorial conquest, which is one of the uh, sort of guiding principles of Chinese diplomacy and international relations over decades. Well, Mark, thank you for the question. It's a good question. Um, you know, I began paying attention to the China-Russia relationship more closely around 2015. And at that time, I had an opportunity to sit next to uh, Xi Jinping's right-hand man at a dinner. And uh, we were talking about, he was traveling with President Xi for a state visit to the United States. And we were talking about what is the difference between traveling to Moscow versus traveling to Washington. And, uh, and he said, when you travel to Moscow, it's friendly, it's fun, it feels comfortable, you feel like you're going to visit a family member, you can laugh, you can joke, you can, you can, you can sort of be yourself. When you come to Washington, it's like taking an examination. Everything has to be precise, you've got to get it exactly right, and there's no margin for error. And I think that there's a certain truth in that, in the way that the Chinese look at this relationship, in the sense that they feel uh, a, a certain camaraderie. Um, with Russia. But most importantly, the first point I want to make is that this relationship is a relationship that's driven from the top. It's, it's driven by the relationship between President Xi and President Putin. They are deeply invested, both of them, in this relationship. They've met over 40 times. They call each other on each other's birthdays. They remember their spouse's birthdays or, or children's birthdays. There is a genuineness to the relationship that exists between these two leaders. The, the second point is that both benefit from the relationship or both believe that they do. If in the case of China, which is what, what Mark asked me about, you know, China, uh, their big vulnerabilities are food, fuel, and arms. Uh, they they uh, are at risk. They have food insecurity, energy insecurity, and they don't have many uh, countries in the world that are willing to sell them arms. Russia provides solutions to all three of those vulnerabilities. Uh, they can provide um, energy over land, they can provide food over land, and they are willing to sell more and more military capabilities to, to the Chinese. The, the other issue, though, is that at the same time as, as China derives benefit from the relationship with Russia, they also recognize that it creates a certain amount of vulnerability for them. Vulnerability with the United States, but also vulnerability with, with Europe and, and other Western powers. And so the, the Chinese are trying to sort of walk this tightrope to a certain extent. Uh, they want to be strong and in solidarity with, uh, with President Putin. Uh, I don't think that they feel too troubled by these pesky principles. I think that they're guided by interests and they're pretty clear-eyed and unapologetic about those interests. But they don't want to burn down the bridge uh, in their relationship with Europe in the process of showing support to Putin. So what do they do? Um, they talk about things that will be appealing. They talk about how China opposes uh, the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons in, in war. They talk about how the Black Sea should remain open uh, for grain transshipment and should not, food should not be used as a weapon of war. These are uh, you know, efforts that uh, reflect Chinese interests, but also reflect a certain desire to maintain a certain uh, degree of space, uh, a certain openness to continuing to develop the relationship with, with Europe and with the United States. They also have dialed back a bit. Uh, we don't hear them talking about the no limits partnership between China and Russia anymore. Uh, there certainly are limits. Uh, the limits are reflected in the fact that uh, Russia now goes to Pyongyang to go shopping for uh, ammunition and armaments, not to, to Beijing. So that, that reflects that, uh, that limits do exist in this relationship still, and that China, um, for all of its uh, talk of solidarity, still recognizes and respects certain boundaries around the, uh, the degree to which they're able to demonstrate their support for their Russian friends.
Speaking of Russia, um, I wanted to turn to Suzanne to talk about Russia-Iran partnerships. And we heard from Ryan just the degree of this bromance between uh, Putin and Xi um, and the lack thereof when they come, when, when the Chinese go to Washington. But what about the relationship between uh, Russia and Iran? Because um, ob- observers have noted that the strengthening of ties between the two uh, since the outbreak of the Ukraine war. So can you tell us a bit more about the strategic partnership between Putin and his Iranian counterpart, Raisi, and what this all means for the West? Yeah, and I think I will note that, you know, for, for many of us who know the history of the two countries, um, it it's not a natural alignment, <laughs> this alignment between the Islamic Republic and Putin's Russia. Um, Iran, uh, ha- it's still very much part of the political discourse and memory of even the Islamic Republic that Iran lost significant territory to the Russian Empire as recently as the 19th century. And uh, Iran, of course, has experienced its own uh, uh, very, very brutal and long lasting uh, uh, fallout from the territorial aggression of a neighbor. And so, you know, this is the, the Iran-Iraq war is still very much the kind of formative experience for the entire elite and, and for much of the Iranian public as well. And so, you know, in February 22, um, it wasn't inherently obvious that the Islamic Republic would uh, move in the direction that we saw it move over the course of subsequent months, which has been um, very much to elevate and to deepen the strategic partnership with Russia. Um, it was it, it's a, ironic because it was the moment where I think the Biden administration came closer than perhaps at any point um, to actually trying to resuscitate the the JCPOA, the the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which of course the Trump administration walked away from, and was a very important priority for the Biden administration. Um, there was a text, a draft. Most of the issues had been uh, resolved uh, in the days after Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, there was a little bit of distance between Tehran and Moscow because uh, the Russian foreign minister started talking about wanting to try to um, exempt some of Russia's activities from from sanctions on either country. And, uh, you know, the Iranians reacted a little bit strangely. They were a little bit uh, put off, I think, by this. But what we saw, of course, over the months that followed was, um, as I said, a deepening of the strategic relationship. I don't think it's a it's a person to person relationship, a leader to leader relationship. Raisi is still in his first couple of years in office. The, the real power in Iran, of course, is Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, uh, who has had a relationship with Putin. But, you know, Iran, like China, definitely operates on, on the basis of interests. And I think what, um, you know, what we see from the willingness of the Iranians to provide not just a significant supply of drones that has made a major impact on Russia's ability to hit critical infrastructure and civilian uh, targets in Ukraine, um, but uh, the, the wider opening of a, of a kind of strategic relationship between them over the course of the past almost two years um, is something that was built in Syria. And, you know, if we talk about many things that are happening in the world today, I think we can come back to the failure of the international community to effectively provide a solution to the, to the horrific war that took place in Syria. Um, it, it was what created the, the basis for trust between these kind of two worry adversaries in Moscow and, 
and uh, Tehran. And it also created a, a really close military to military relationship um, there. And um, I think the, what the Iranians have determined is that um, they, they do not see the kind of future that historically and frankly, well, long before this current regime, but really, but something that persisted during the regime was a sense that, you know, Iran was an inherent part of the West um, and that its economy, its culture, everything was sort of oriented, even when it was oppositional, it was oriented toward the West. Um, this, there has been talks since 1979 of, um, you know, sort of the, the opportunities that might lie in the East. And I think that what we've seen is this current set of leadership really consolidated among hardliners. Um, the conviction that they've taken away from the failure of the Iran nuclear deal from their side, and that's a failure from our side as well, is that, you know, the economic opportunity will never actually manifest itself in a meaningful way with respect to Europe because of the opposition from the United States, whereas there's enormous opportunity, not so much economic opportunity with Russia. The drones may be, a, you know, sort of more important strategically than economically, um, but real economic opportunity with China and elsewhere. And so Iran wants to put itself in this kind of pantheon of non-Western powers that are closely aligned. So it's doubled down, it's invested in that relationship with Russia, but with a larger eye to the potential economic benefits that might come from China. We're going to uh, move on to questions from uh, the audience and our online audience in a moment. So let me, um, if I'm allowed one last question uh, to put it to, to, uh, to Ryan. But the question, sort of the style of diplomacy of, uh, well, the most powerful autocrat, she, and uh, also uh, the most powerful leader of, the, of uh, a democracy, President Biden. They just had a fruitful meeting in San Francisco. Um, there was much was made of, of uh, sort of a rapprochement and, and how there was even a, a, a apparently uh, President Biden even showed a picture of a, a young she in front of the Golden Gate Bridge uh, on his phone. Um, and uh, it seemed a lot warmer, but then... In at the press conference, President Biden uh, said when he was asked, "Well, is is she now now a dictator?" and he said, "In a sense, right." Um, what do you make of this this style of diplomacy where you wine and dine your competitor and then you vow to restore some normalcy in relations, and in the end, you you sort of highlight the differences again? Um, for those who haven't uh, watched Saturday Night Live, uh, you can find their their take on this question. They they did a cold open to the to this question, so it'd be hard for me to beat Saturday Night Live in my analysis, but I'll try. Um, what I would say is that President Biden is a lot of things. He's passionate. He's deep-hearted. He has conviction. Rhetorical precision is not something that I would associate with him. <laughs> And I, I say this to someone who's fond of him. I had an opportunity to serve alongside him during the, the second term of the Obama administration. He is a kind man, um, but he he is not a person who follows talking points or reads from a script. Um, he sort of says what he thinks and believes. And fortunately, uh, I think that the Chinese leadership understands this. Um, and so while I don't think any advisor to President Biden would have scripted him to say that, uh, it, you know, in the wake of his meeting with President Xi, that he's a dictator. That's just how he feels. Uh, that's how he thinks. What I would point to, though, is that when the APEC meeting, which is the, the, the event that brought the two leaders together, when it closed, there's video of President Biden going across the hall to President Xi and saying something uh, at the end of the meeting before President Xi left to go back to Beijing. My guess 
uh, this is pure speculation, but my guess is that he probably said something along the lines of, you know, I said what I said, I think what I think, but we can still be, we can still work together. Uh, we can still get along. And uh, it'll be up to the Chinese to decide whether or not uh, that is a, a proposition that they're willing to take. I think it will be um, because what's the alternative? Right. Uh, the United States only has one president at a time. President Biden will be president uh, through November or, or January of next year at a minimum. And so um, they will have to find ways to continue working together. Um, this certainly isn't the style that, uh, that the Chinese leadership prefers, but uh, they've been around President Biden long enough to sort of understand uh, who he is and how he operates as well. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Diplomacy requires a mix of meticulous relationship building and the less exact art of reading the geopolitical tea leaves. It can also boil down to personal affinity. Enjoying the company of your counterpart has throughout history made for strong bilateral relations. But the other side of that dynamic is that individual quirks and personalities can stall crucial conversations and increase the chance of misunderstanding and perhaps even conflict. Diana Fu of the Monk School says this interpersonal issue is a problem for U.S.-China relations. And this is exactly why the Chinese don't, don't like to visit Washington, because they get mixed messages. And I don't imagine Putin, Putin probably would say the same thing, but in a very congratulatory manner. We continue now with a conversation recorded in November of 2023 at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy about the high-stakes, high-wire act that defines U.S. diplomacy with autocratic nations. So we want to turn to questions from the audience. Um, I want to start with one question from online from a student of mine in Chinese politics who is asking about if uh, China can play an important role in mediating peace in the Middle East. And I think this is a very important question because um, prior to the outbreak of the conflict, China was starting to play a bit more of a role in mediating um, in the Middle East. And to tack on to that question, I also was wondering about um, whether you think that the U.S. is coming out of this, well, not out of, but through this conflict, that the U.S. is actually losing moral authority in the eyes of the global South, whereas China's moral authority is ascending in the eyes of non-Western powers. And because of that moral authority, does that give them more um, opportunities to play medi mediator role in the Middle East? So I guess we'll start with Suzanne and then maybe turn to Ryan. Yeah, I'll try to be really brief because I look forward to hearing what Ryan has to say on this. Um, 
I am not optimistic that the Chinese could play a meaningful role, nor that they would want to from an outsider's perspective. Um, you know, the, the annals of history are littered with failure in terms of, um, you know, navigating Middle East peace. And it's hard to imagine conditions that are going to be less fortuitous than what we're facing at the moment. So I think, you know, the, the Chinese played a sort of, um, you know, finale role in this Iran-Saudi rapprochement um, that was largely negotiated in the region through traditional interlocutors in Oman and in Iraq. Um, but both, I think, particularly the Saudis wanted to send a message to Washington by bringing in the Chinese to to kind of seal the deal. And it definitely did that. There, the issue of China looms very large for America for everything that we've been doing, including the way that we've been uh, supporting the Israelis, um, kind of a recognition on the part of American officials that we, we need this operation to be done right and successfully so that we're not all back here again in a couple of years because we need to continue the pivot to Asia. Um, I will say very briefly on the issue of U.S. moral authority in the global south that, yes, I assume it has suffered substantially as a result of the kind of split screen that we're seeing of civilian uh, carnage being condemned in Ukraine and not being condemned nearly as forcefully, uh, if at all, uh, with respect to Gaza. So I think that that's a huge issue. Whether it actually rebounds to the benefit of China, I'll turn to Ryan. Well, I, I agree with everything that, that Suzanne said. Um, look, if China is able to broker a solution to the problem in the Middle East, the world will be a better place. So I wish them well. I wish them luck. But I don't think that we should hold our breath and expect that this is going to be the case. Because the reality is that siding with Palestine uh, and opposing Israel is not a pathway that leads to uh, a solution to the problems that we face uh, in Israel and Gaza. Period. It just isn't. And uh, if you look at uh, the amount of investment that the United States has made relative to the amount of investment that China has made uh, in trying to manage and deal with this issue, it's just the apples and oranges comparison. Uh, President Biden traveled into a war zone. He sent two aircraft carrier strike groups to the region. Uh, he has worked very aggressively to try to um, manage this issue. President Xi has not. Uh, he sent a mid-level foreign affairs official to travel around the region. And that's it. Uh, China's foreign minister hosted uh, several um, foreign ministers from the region. That's nice. But where is where is President Xi? Uh, if he has a solution, he is doing a, a wonderful job of concealing it. The, the final thought that I would offer, though, uh, to just try to sound a little less dark about all of this, is that at the end of the day, I don't think that the United States and China have uh, interests in the region that are fundamentally at odds with each other. Um, we both uh, want to see uninterrupted flows of oil from the region. We both want to see uh, a reduction of threats emanating from the region. We both benefit from stability in the region. And so I, I hope I don't leave you with the impression that this is some zero-sum game between the United States and China and the Middle East where one side's gain is the other side's loss. I actually don't think in this instance uh, that that is the case. A question from the audience. We mentioned earlier the Abram Accords uh, and uh, uh, a number of countries have seen sort of the rise of populist leaders, of course, you know, first foremost the U.S. Uh, and some of these leaders have surprised us with a very active diplomacy. Uh, is there maybe um, something? Let, maybe let, let me ask Suzanne this, is, this question: Is there something about uh, populist leaders that they're willing to throw uh, established principles overboard that they can actually achieve things in, in their diplomatic efforts that that um, 
more run-of-the-mill, middle-of-the-road uh, uh, democratic leaders normally can't achieve? It's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, we've seen a rise of populism around the world, and the Middle East is no stranger to that. Um, but it's hard for me to point to coherent and lasting diplomatic achievements that have come about through these sorts of actors on the international stage. None come to mind in the Middle East. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've survived um, some bad leaders and some bad decisions on the part of both the United States and other countries in the region. Um, but, you know, in, in many ways, the sort of, um, you know, showmanship of populist leaders tends to contribute to, I think, a, 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 a you know, sort of denigration and, and devolution of predictable diplomacy and, you know, the, the really hard work that happens behind the scenes of trying to build the conditions for resolution of conflicts or other so sorts of solutions. So just because, um, you know, we avoided the worst during the Trump administration um, with respect to crises like Iran and North Korea in which, you know, tensions ratcheted up, but then in fact um, abated, uh, I, I, I would prefer to have um, a set of leaders that are not, in fact, pandering to the worst impulses of their own populations when it comes to trying to deal with the really difficult issues that we face in this part of the world. The next question is from an audience member here, and it is definitely for Ryan, because it is about the Taiwan Strait, which you've written a lot about, and you've uh, argued very persuasively um, that, um, you know, there it's not inevitable that there would be war over Taiwan. Uh, and so given that we've seen that, um, you know, the opposition leaders have united in Taiwan and we are expecting an election in January, um, what do you think, um, uh, what, what, what do you think um, the U.S.'s positioning should be towards, towards Taiwan in the um, upcoming months uh, in order to avoid conflict there? Well, the, the Biden administration has tried very hard to maintain a neutral posture on Taiwan's upcoming election. So Taiwan's uh, current president is term limited. She will leave office uh, next May. Uh, there is a election in January to decide who will succeed her. Uh, one of the candidates is her vice president, uh, Lai Ching-do, William Lai, who is uh, vowing to sort of provide a third term of the Tsai administration's approach to um, cross-strait issues and U.S.-Taiwan relations. The opposition candidates... Um, are currently divided. Uh, yesterday, they had vowed that they would come together and form a joint ticket to challenge the uh, incumbent party. Today, uh, they they announced that they are unable to to reconcile their differences and and they will remain divided. If Taiwan's opposition parties remain divided, the highest likelihood is that uh, the incumbent party will continue to uh, stay in power. But look, this is a fluid situation. It changed from yesterday to today. It could change from today to tomorrow. And so we will know whether or not uh, the, the opposition parties will be able to unite by uh, this time next week. The, the broader point, though, is that uh, the situation is fluid. We don't know uh, how this election is going to unfold. And frankly, it's really uh, a choice left to the 23 million people of Taiwan to decide, not to Washington. And, I, and so I think that the Biden administration has been appropriate in trying to remain uh, neutral and even-handed in its approach and not trying to tip the scales one way or the other uh, in support or opposition to any of the candidates. Yeah, another question from the from the audience here. Um, we speak a lot about uh, the global South and its perception of diplomatic efforts, uh, and of course, this is something that you know, if we if we sort of think of diplomacy throughout history, there's much more of an audience nowadays of diplomatic efforts. Uh, 
But is it really true that when we talk about the global south, that there is some that is one opinion of the conflict in the Middle East? Because um, we don't really know what Chinese, what the Chinese domestic audience thinks about this. India is the most populous country in the global south. Uh, seems to be firmly on the side of Israel. Uh, so, to what extent does this matter for diplomatic efforts? That there is a an audience that is the global south in quotation marks that may not be uniform at all. Ryan, do you want to take that? Or it's, uh, <laughs> I, I was hoping that Suzanne would. I, I will get us started and hand, hand it off to Suzanne quickly, which is to say that I actually am rather allergic to the term global south because what does it mean? Who is in the global south? Where does the boundary uh, get drawn? Um, I think that there are a, a group of countries that are developing uh, that are not aligned necessarily with the United States or with China or Russia uh, that uh, are guided by their own interests on an issue-by-issue basis to, um, to move in certain directions. Those are important countries that will have an outsized impact on uh, the direction of the international system over the coming decade and, and beyond. And so as, I, you know, as an American, as I look at American foreign policy, and I, I think that the same applies for many of our, our partners as well, we're pretty good with allies. We're pretty focused on our adversaries. There is a, a group of countries uh, in the middle uh, that we are going to need to cultivate uh, and, and dedicate more resources, focus, and attention to if we want to continue to have uh, significant influence over the direction of events in the coming decades. But with that, over to Suzanne. I think that was um, you know, a perfect summation of a completely reasonable position and one that I would not in any way disagree with. Um, we all hate the terminology global south. No one seems to be able to come up with a, a, a shorthand that enables us to talk about large swaths of the world in two words or less. And maybe that's the challenge that we need to stop. We need to disaggregate. Um, I think that um, there, there uh, have been a variety of reactions from, as, as you pointed out, as the questioner pointed out, uh, from various countries in the global south, such as it is, or such as we call it. Um, that are that are diverse in many respects, but I do think that you know there's a broader concern that American policymakers should keep in mind that um, when we uh, have when we articulate principles that but we don't in fact apply them um, in a way that can be coherently understood. It's never going to be wholly uniform, but it should be coherent and understood. Um, that we subject ourselves to charges of hypocrisy. That is something that would not be new for the Biden administration, would not be new in the century for American policymakers. But um, I think that it, our, our foreign policy is more effective when it is understood and when it has the capacity to generate some degree of uh, uh, sympathy and support all over the world, developing or south or north or wherever. And I think that you know this has been a place where um, you know, the administration has struggled, and certainly not just on the Middle East, it's on articulating its own case for support for Ukraine, even to the American people. And, uh, you know, that may have more to do with the information environment that we're in today than it does with um, where one resides. So we have more questions from online. I would direct first to Suzanne. And then you're next in line. <laughs> um, so U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell called China, Russia and Iran the new axis of evil. Uh, rings of a Bush era, but do you agree? And do you think that this alliance is an existential threat to the U.S. and to the world order, Suzanne? I, you know, am allergic to the phrase <laughs> "axis of evil." I think it, you know, its original invocation did us no favors and accomplished no good in the world. Um, and I don't see that um, in any way uh, 
reviving this kind of lexicon actually advances any diplomatic aims. I do think that, you know, what we've seen is that there is some coordination and some sense of, I would say, synergy among, um, you know, three very different countries with very different interests. Um, there is uh, perhaps a common sense of, uh, you know, civilizational uh, superiority. Uh, and there is, I think, a resentment of the United States and its imposition of its preferences, values, interests uh, on the, the rest of the world that is common between them. But there are huge differences amongst them, not just in terms of their capacity or their interests, um, but in the degree to which they're actually willing and able to coordinate effectively uh, between them. So I, I, I don't think that you know, there is a kind of, um, you know, anti-justice league out there that, you know, we can um, use as a rallying cry. I don't think it, it helps us in any meaningful way. Um, but I also think it's important to understand that, that, that there are um, powerful authoritarian states that have an interest in pushing back against both U.S. influence and power, but also against the, the established world order. And, um, you know, recognizing that that challenge doesn't require us to use cartoonish language. I, I, I can't improve upon that. I will uh, stand by everything that Suzanne said. So, um, Ryan, China has, uh, of course, engaged in uh, through various various means of diplomacy, including the Belt and Road Initiative, but also um, using its development banks to fund all kinds of development projects, especially in Africa. And uh, now, in the current situation, the rising interest rates, uh, a lot of these uh, debts are overdue. Um, and there is some resentment stirring in some parts of the world. Uh, how does the Chinese leadership deal with that? Do you have, do you have sense of, of what their approach might be? If they're taking a hard-nosed, purely commercial approach, if they're willing to maybe extend um, loan repayment periods for diplomatic reasons, uh, ultimately? Well, I will... Um put at risk my think tank membership card by saying my answer is, I don't know. Um, the, the, uh, the honest truth is I don't think the Chinese leadership knows either. Uh, I think that uh, the commercial, commercially driven projects that uh, they launched the Belt and Road Initiative, these weren't altruistic. Uh, they were designed um, to address a challenge that they needed to fix at home, uh, to find the outlet for uh, an abundance of capital to find an outlet for abundance of, uh, of resources and of people. And um, they charge commercial rates, not uh, concessionary rates for the loans that they provided. And now we are in a situation with, uh, you know, interest rates rising and countries feeling heavier debt loads where they're going to have to figure out how to manage it. My guess is it'll be case by case and, uh, and the Chinese will demonstrate flexibility uh, in the way that they, um, the way that they handle each of these cases, they will have to restructure a lot of their loans um, and they will try to get as much back as they possibly can. Okay, so the next question, um, I'm going to combine two of them, one from in-person and one from online. And I have to preface this by saying that we, here at the Monk School, we have um, several focuses and one of them is the digital world. And so this is someone who's been um, engaged in taking, uh, taking classes on the digital world and has a question about what is the role of uh, cyber capabilities and, and cyber attacks and disinformation in, we've seen the malign influence of them, but what is, um, is there any role for that 
uh, for those cyber capabilities to plan facilitating a more productive form of diplomacy? Kind of a tough question. And if you want to link it to something, um, to the malign effects of disinformation, you could link it, uh, Ryan, to uh, to the Taiwan uh, upcoming Taiwan elections, in which we suspect that um, Beijing might be engaged in disinformation in that election. That's that was the other question from online. Well, I, I'm happy to get it started. The I think that the laboratory that we need to be watching is Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is where China um, tests. Um, its capabilities. It is a native Chinese-speaking environment, uh, and the Chinese have demonstrated uh, tremendous growth and progress in their ability to improve their capacity to try to influence um, public attitudes in Taiwan about upcoming elections. Now, I would say that uh, as important as it is for us to keep an unblinking eye on this problem, we also need to keep perspective about it, um, because it is pernicious uh, when China tries to employ disinformation and other capabilities, cyber capabilities to uh, influence public attitudes, but it is not a, a silver bullet. In other words, maybe on the margins, if it's a 50.1 to 49.9% division election, maybe it's possible for the Chinese to, to swing an election. Um, but the, there is limits to uh, how effective and how impactful uh, these capabilities are. I don't say that to diminish the significance of it or, or the amount of attention that it deserves, um, but just that we, we need to, uh, even as we are focused on it, we need to understand that it is not some omniscient um, power that is going to allow China to rewire the world in its favorite image. The volume of misinformation and disinformation around the Gaza war is just unbelievable, you know, and there are amazing people out there who are trying to debunk it in real time. But you see, you know, images and frankly, you know, in a grotesque irony, a lot of them emanating from the Syrian civil war um, and it passed off as as accusations largely aimed at Israel um, and, and, you know, retweeted or consumed by millions of people. And it's a, I think it's a really dangerous phenomenon and one that, you know, you talk about the Taiwan election. I think, we're, you know, we have our own elections in the United States next November. And one can imagine that there may be preferences in other capitals about uh, how those elections might play out. And, you know, even if it works only at the margins in convincing a small number of people, uh, it's it, it's deeply, deeply worrisome. I think the information environment that we're in is not one that's favorable to democracy. And the fact that we're not able to establish authentic truth and have an arbiter of that in, in a way um, leaves us all open to, I think, a, a lot of subversion. So I, I'm deeply worried, but I, you know, and we have colleagues who work on this day in and day out, but there are no easy answers. Last week, I saw this wonderful moment on TikTok when uh, when something went viral that the that Osama uh, uh, bin Laden's letter to America was allegedly eye opening. Um, I think it went more. It was more because it was so absurd that it went viral rather than actually that people uh, uh, perceived it as such. Uh, so, a question from the audience uh, that um, I'm not sure if you would like to take it. Um, Something that sort of left our again one of the many issues that we we looked at and that that has disappeared from the radar mm -hmm. screen is of course Afghanistan and the Taliban leadership there right with withdrawal clearly probably one of the regimes that is most difficult to do do diplomacy with but uh, what does China how does China try to deal with uh, the Taliban leadership now? Um, as the government of Af Afghanistan, what are they looking for? Um, how are they trying to influence the situation there, if at all? Well, the the Chinese 
don't have any moral compunctions about engaging with the Taliban. Uh, the Taliban is the governing authority of Afghanistan, and that, therefore that is who the Chinese will deal with. Uh, I think the Chinese have two overriding interests uh, in their engagements with the Taliban, maybe three. The, the first is to make sure that uh, Chinese people operating in Afghanistan are not harmed. That would do damage to Chinese interests. Uh, it would do, of course, human uh, damage, um, but it would call into question China's project in Afghanistan. So they want to make sure that, that their people are protected. Uh, the second is that they want uh, to try to unlock the commercial uh, opportunities that exist in Afghanistan. They have uh, sort of a, a sunken cost in their investment in the INOT copper mine, uh, which is one of the largest copper deposits in the world that the Chinese have uh, had rights to for some time, but have not been able to extract uh, resources from because of the, uh, the overall situation in Afghanistan. And then the third is to make sure that problems in Afghanistan don't emanate outwards and spill over into Western China. Uh, the Chinese are, are deeply sensitive to, um, to events along their Western periphery. They uh, are very determined to ensure that uh, what happens in Afghanistan stays in Afghanistan, and then it's a Taliban job to make sure that it stays that way. I'm going to combine a couple of questions um, here on um, back to the Israel-Palestine conflict. And specifically, we have people who are wanting to hear a little bit more about China's positioning in this, in this region, um, because we already talked about how there are historical ties. And there's also something we, we didn't address too much, which is, which is ideological solidarity with, um, with Palestinians and, and with Arab states. And so I was wondering if, if either of you could speak more to this dance that China's doing in terms of calling for stability, call, calling for things to calm down because of course as you said Ryan it's the in, in the interest of everybody to have stability but also maintaining that sort of ideological uh, solidarity in a sense with um, with countries that um, that see the West as um, imperialistic power let, let me just say first um, on the question about disinformation and misinformation uh, this is a topic that we all need uh, new fresh thinking on uh, and so we will be active consumers of uh, of the good thinking that comes out of the school and and uh, I, I commend the effort on on the question about China's position in the Middle East um, I'm not sure what more there is to say uh, that the, the Chinese uh, are opportunistic they see uh, a, a market opening. Um, to draw a sharpening contrast between the United States standing behind Israel and what they want to present is themselves standing up for the little guy. Uh, and that, uh, that they uh, are defenders and protectors of the rights of Palestinians and also of, uh, of people in the Muslim world, even in spite of um, their actions at home uh, against Uyghur Muslims. And that is, that is the image that they are trying to present um, they, they want to be seen as, um, as being a force for good and a force for peace, but they don't have a plan or uh, a demonstration of capacity to try to realize uh, peace in the Middle East. And so they're relying upon platitudes and, and banner headlines and, um, and hoping that that will uh, be enough uh, to convince uh, a large enough number of people that they are on the right side of this problem. I actually don't think any of the parties in the region see the Chinese as, uh, you know, sort of meaningful interlocutors that could that could make a difference in this conflict. It, you know, even the parties that resent the United States or disagree with the U.S. position still look to Washington as the kind of purveyor of uh, peacemaking and active diplomacy. And I think, you know, there's almost no substitute for Washington's role in terms of its ability to 
you know, bring the parties together to try to fashion something that at least staunches the damage and begins to build a pathway to something that might be durable in the long term. Um, you know, the the US, the Biden administration was working very hard to bring about a normalization between the Saudis and the Israelis, and there was a lot of effort invested in that. And I think that even though the conditions have changed in, in really dramatic ways, um, the vestiges of that diplomacy will be part and parcel of, of whatever happens on the day after or in the months and weeks after uh, the conflict begins to abate. Um, because if anything, the interest is even stronger today than it was pre-October 7th from the point of view of the Saudis. Um, they want to minimize Iran's ability to provoke and stoke conflict. They want to uh, marginalize the bad actors like Hamas. And they want to build a different economic future for their own people that relies on calm and stability across the region. Um, I, I think there will be a different set of asks that will be necessary. There will have to be some kind of a pathway, if not to a two-state solution, at least to an outcome that provides economic and political opportunities for the Palestinian people. I, I don't think, you know, without that, we won't be able to get to the normalization. But I do think that you know, much of the region's population, of course, 70% under the age of, of 21, um, that, you know, they're not uh, conditioned by the, the um, you know, history around this conflict in a way that would make it impossible to get back to something that would be more positive. It's interesting to hear both of you say that even though China has has a stake in, in the Middle East, that it's in no time going to be replaced uh, U.S.'s diplomatic centrality there, um, because one of the things that I've been talking to my students about is the transition in China's role from a partial power to a global power. And one of the marks of a global power is not just having presence in the globe, but also be able to have moral authority. So even though China may come out of this with increased moral authority in terms of a, of a dimension of soft power. But what you're saying is that, that that moral authority may not translate into actual diplomacy that can actually make a difference uh, in the Middle East. So I'm afraid we're out of time, but um, I want to thank again our um, panelists for being willing to be subjected to, to grilling on everything from China to the Middle East to Putin to Afghanistan. I mean, just thank you so much for, for subjecting yourselves to that round of questioning and, and providing such eloquent and thoughtful answers. Thank you very very much. You've been listening to a conversation about U.S. diplomacy and autocratic regimes. The conversation was recorded at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. This episode was produced by Nahid Mustafa. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.